say in the hearts of those who are darkened by their own sin, let there be light and create light where there was only darkness through the preaching of your word. Bring your power to bear. Bring your mercy and love to bear. Bring your knowledge to bear. Reveal yourself. And give life and light where there was only death and darkness. Encourage and teach. Correct and rebuke. Exhort. Give us grace to hear your word now as what it really is, not the words of men, but the word of God. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You might remember the popular TV show Undercover Boss. It's pretty formulaic. I feel like in my old age, I, I start to appreciate formulaic shows more and more. I just know what's going to happen. It's comforting to me. never gets old. The boss of a company in this undercover boss disguises herself as a new employee or a new manager among her own workers to get an honest look under the hood of the company. It's a way of getting a firsthand assessment of the health of the business, the morale of the workers. In the course of almost every episode... There's that awkward moment when the outspoken but well-meaning employee criticizes or makes fun of her boss to her boss without knowing that it's her boss. Everybody loves that moment. You're like, oh, she said that. Of course, when the big reveal happens at the end and the boss brings in a few of the employees that he interviewed, it's that most outspoken employee that usually gets the big gift or the big raise or the big promotion or gets their school debt paid off because her feedback was so eye-opening or her situation was so poignant. So it all works out in the end, even though she may have been unwittingly disrespectful to her undercover boss. The premise is You only get honest, direct feedback from your employees if they don't realize who they're talking to. And it's a feel-good show for middle-class America, so the boss gets a reality check. We all kind of like to see the employees sticking it to the man and the, the man going, oh, God, I didn't really realize. Oh, you felt like that. Oh, yeah, I guess I was wrong. And the employees are always proven right. They get a bigger say in how the company runs. And they all live happily after, ever after in a better company with a more understanding boss, better morale, better pay, and better procedures. Roll the credits. We all have closure. We can go to bed happy. Rarely, if ever, did I see an episode of Undercover Boss where the boss ended up firing the employees for cause. I mean, that would be kind of, kind of ruin the vibe, wouldn't it? And I certainly never saw one where the employees tried to murder the boss. Like, that would kind of ruin the reality show too, right? Like, you, you can't put attempted murder on network TV. But as we turn to John 19 this morning, we're going to see Jesus, the Son of God, veiled under the cover of human flesh, humbling himself, to horrific, murderous abuse and a barbaric death by those who should have welcomed him with worship. The world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, John had said in chapter 1, and his own people did not receive him. First, we're going to watch the story unfold, and then we'll summarize the point and see what else is true from it, and then we'll draw a few different kinds of applications. So walk through the text with me as we start in chapter 19, verse 1. We'll go through verse 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Pilate didn't do that personally. He had it done officially by soldiers under his command. He commanded it to be done, and what was done is not to be overlooked here. This flogging itself could have killed Jesus and often did kill other 
criminals who had to endure it. It was horrific. The first century Jewish historian Josephus refers to opponents of Roman rulers being scourged, and I quote from Josephus, until their entrails were visible. And this same Josephus reports a procurator laying bare a man's bones, though the man survived through this kind of whipping. The instruments used in this kind of Roman beating would have been leather whips whose thongs were knotted and interspersed with pieces of iron or bone. I mean, can you, like, your back is sensitive skin, and it's just ripping off. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. This was a typical kind of sport that soldiers made of criminals. It could get pretty boring being a Roman soldier if you weren't at war. And so you had to entertain yourself somehow. And usually, condemned criminals were a good way to get your kicks. They were treating him like they'd treat any foolish, anyone foolish enough to call himself a king in a Roman province. They crown him, but with thorns. And if you're paying attention, those thorns remind you of God's curse on man's sin from Genesis 3. The only reason those thorns are there in the first place is that God put them there as the curse on man's sinful rebellion against God. And here the soldiers are viewing the gospel of God in human flesh. And yet the gospel is falling into thorny soil in their own hearts. They love the world, they just hate the one who made it. Soldiers clothe Jesus, but in old faded purple or scarlet military robe, color of kings. And now that they've got Jesus all decked out, all dolled up just like they want him as royalty, bloodied beyond recognition from the whipping, mind you, they mock him with the same phrase they would use to greet Caesar on an official visit. Hail, King. But it's with a smirk and a cheap shot. What John is doing in showing you this, though, is inverting the soldier's irony. The soldiers think the joke is on Jesus. John is relating this to show you, no, no, no. The joke is on you. You don't know what you're doing or who you're doing it to. The soldiers enjoy their own irony. King of the Jews, my foot, some king. But John turns their irony back in on itself. The real irony is that they are mocking as king the one who in fact is king. They're mocking the only king worthy of their worship. They are mocking the very king who will one day be their judge. And they are mocking the only king who can save them from the damnation that their mocking deserves. And how will he save them? By his death that they are sending him to this very day. Pilate went out again, verse 4, and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. Or maybe, Behold the man. They had flogged and beaten Jesus inside, out of the Jews' view. Pilate now presents Jesus to the Jews outside, bloodied and humiliated. Now, it's pretty rich of Pilate to whip Jesus nearly to death and then come out and say to the Jews, See, I think he's innocent. Well, then why'd you treat him like that? 
Pilate probably hopes that the whipping will satisfy the bloodlust of the mob so he doesn't have to execute an innocent man and have his death on his conscience. Maybe now the crowd will disperse and Pilate can get on with his busy legislative day. When Pilate says, behold the man, he's trying to get the Jews to see how pathetic Jesus looks, not so that they'll feel sorry for him, but so they'll see how ridiculous it is to think he's even worth prosecuting. I mean, you think this guy, this is the guy you want me to crucify. you got to be kidding me. Look at him. I don't consider him a threat. This should be enough. Look at the man, not the king, not the prophet, not the rebel, the man. That's all, if you can even call him that in this condition. What are we even doing here with someone who's put himself in such an appalling situation? Let it go. Can we please move on? Verse 6, they can't move on. When the chief priests and the officers of the temple saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Chief priests aren't moving on. They're not just out for blood. They want to make a spectacle of Jesus. They saw Jesus bloodied and exhausted, humiliated, and that was not enough. Nothing but crucifixion is going to satisfy them for Jesus. But Pilate is getting fed up with this. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. I got more important things to do than deal with someone who's calling himself king and ends up like this. And now for the third time, Pilate testifies to Jesus' innocence. A pagan, a Roman officer of the state is testifying for a third time. 1838, I find no guilt in him. 194, I find no guilt in him. And now in verse 6, I find no guilt in him. How many times can Pilate say it? I don't think this man has deserved anything worthy of death. He bears unwitting testimony to Jesus' sinlessness. Three times in a row, he speaks better than he knows. Again, listen to that. Look at that. Look at how close you can come to saying truth about the gospel and have no idea what you're even talking about. But the priests aren't buying it. Look there in verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So again, look at that. Christian, Bible believer. The Jews are trying to be people of the book. They're the Bible thumpers. We have a law. They're the conservative ones. They're the careful ones. They think Jesus is violating the third commandment as badly as possible. He is taking the Lord's name in vain on himself as if he's God. Calling himself God's son. I mean, it's an open and shut case, right? They've got chapter and verse. Leviticus 24, 16. You blaspheme the name of God, you get stoned. They've got scripture on their side. They can proof text it. But when Pilate hears that Jesus has been claiming divinity, it scares him even more. Which means he was already scared before that. Now, it doesn't say what he was already scared of, but it doesn't take a whole lot to figure it out. Jesus had now been a miracle-working sensation with people in Pilate's jurisdiction for three years. Pilate didn't live under a rock. 
He had to have heard of Jesus' miracles and teaching, so he was already wondering who he was dealing with. Is this guy some kind of a sorcerer? Some kind of magician? What is he? Is he a prophet or some kind of guru? There was a mystique to Jesus that Pilate already found disconcerting. Jesus made Pilate feel unsafe, which may be one reason he had him flogged so badly. And he was also a big political problem for Pilate, as we will soon find out. But when Pilate hears Jesus has been claiming divinity, now Pilate starts to wonder, uh, are you related to Jupiter? Are you the son of Apollo or Zeus or Mars? What, what, do, you, what do they mean, you think you're God's son? Like, I believe in the gods, and I want them on my side. Where, where are you from? Am I about to make the gods angry? Have I just flogged a son of the gods? That's why he's asking Jesus, where are you from? Origin reveals identity, and for Pi- both for Pilate and for John the Evangelist. Remember, Jesus' origin story has been a major issue for John all along. Nicodemus didn't know where the wind comes from, much less the new birth. The Samaritan woman will ask Jesus, from where will you get this living water? Jesus will ask in John 6, from where will we get bread to feed so many people, knowing exactly what he was going to do? The people in John 7, 27 assume they know where Jesus is from, but in 8, 14, he reminds the Jews, you do not know where I am from. And it's a man born blind, remember, who points out the irony to the Jews in chapter 9, verse 30. Now, this is an amazing thing, that Jesus opened my eyes, and you don't know where he's from. I'm born blind. He opens my eyes, and you don't know where the guy's from? Give me a break. You guys know the Old Testament prophecies like the back of your head. Where do you think he's from? He ain't from around here, that's for sure. He's from up there. He's not from this world. And now that crucial question reappears on a pagan's lips. Where are you from? As if to let us readers know, hey, here's the issue. It's all coming to a head. Jesus' identity is going to be revealed. And you need to know who he is. And where he's from. And yet Jesus lets Pilate's question go unanswered. Which we look at and we think, Jesus, what? <laughs> You're kind of missing an opportunity here. Like, put yourself on the stand. Defend yourself. Say something. And Pilate's kind of frustrated by it. And we're a little bit frustrated by it too. But you've got to see what's going on there. You tell me, would you answer Pilate's question? if he had just treated you like that and then testified to your innocence publicly? Hey, man, I I don't think I owe you an explanation of where I'm from. You just whipped an innocent man to within an inch of his death, and now you're asking where he's from. Oh, that's rich. Where was that question before you had me whipped? This is not justice. And this is not genuine interest or concern. Pilate has forfeit his right, if he ever had one to begin with, to an answer from Jesus by his own behavior. And now Pilate swings all the way from being scared to being ticked off. So Pilate said to him, verse 10, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Hey, wake up, Jesus. I'm talking to you. Don't you know who you're talking to? I can crucify you or I can release you. What do you want? That's that's his attitude towards Jesus. I have authority over you. You better start talking. And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
So Pilate thinks he's putting the screws to Jesus. But Jesus turns the tables on him and in so doing kind of implies an answer to where he's from. Pilate tells Jesus, hey, don't you realize you're accountable to me? And Jesus answers, the only reason you have authority over me is that it's been given to you from above. From heaven, from God. Truth be told, from me, from Jesus. Jesus and John both know Jesus himself is from above. The implication is Pilate would have no authority over Jesus if Jesus himself had not been part of giving him that authority from eternity past. Pilate is not sovereign over this. God is sovereign. Jesus. Jesus is sovereign. Now, I've got to admit, I don't fully understand still the therefore in verse 11 and what comes after. I don't get how exactly the Jews have a greater sin than Pilate as a result of Pilate's authority being derived from heaven and not inherent in himself. I'm not sure I understand that. As far as I can tell, the idea is that Pilate is a stranger to Jewish scripture and the prophecies of Christ. Pilate's in over his head. He's only doing what God's providence has assigned him without a clue as to the historical, spiritual, scriptural, cosmic significance of what he's doing. The Jews, on the other hand, should have known better from their own scriptures. They should have recognized Jesus as the Christ from all the Old Testament categories and prophecies he fulfilled. Pilate was an outsider to all that, but not the Jews who handed Jesus over to him. Their knowledge aggravated both their sin and their accountability for their sin. That made their sin worse than Pilate's. Whatever the case, part of Jesus' point is to remind Pilate that he is not just exercising authority, he is under authority, the authority of heaven. And that's probably why Pilate does what he does in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Doesn't say what actions he took, but it gives him credit. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And probably the emphasis is there, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. So now Pilate wants nothing more to do with Jesus. He's claiming to be some sort of son of the gods. He's reminding Pilate that he's under the authority of heaven. However, Pilate construes that. And the last thing Pilate wants is any trouble with Zeus or Jupiter or any other god or son of a god. So he makes a vain effort at doing what he thinks is going to be the right thing. But he doesn't stick with it very long because the Jews are playing hardball with him. They threaten to tell on him to Caesar, who at the time is Tiberius, who is known for being suspicious, paranoid, and inhumanely cruel. The Jews have been saving this ace to trump Pilate. And now they've got the upper hand. The Jews could actually file a formal complaint about Pilate as a provincial king to Caesar, Tiberius. If they complained to Tiberius that Pilate had pardoned someone, that the Jews themselves had turned in for treason, claiming to be a king... That could get Pilate in serious trouble if Pilate pardoned the guy that the Jews were trying to prosecute as a traitor. You see? In fact, that Jewish strategy had already worked previously, according to Jewish historian Philo. On one occasion, Pilate had wanted to set up symbols of Roman power in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders asked if he had permission from Tiberius to do that. Hey, do you have a letter from Tiberius for setting that stuff up? Because that offends our religion. Pilate didn't have permission, so he had to change his plan, at least in part. But the Jews still appealed to Tiberius on that occasion, and Tiberius publicly humiliated Pilate for it. They made Tiberius regret it, not having permission from from, from Tiberius to do something. They made Pilate regret that previously. 
according to another ancient source, a later complaint, something that happened after John 19, ultimately led to Pilate's recall, his exile in Gaul, and maybe even his forced suicide. So the Jews know what they're doing here. They've got an ace up their sleeve, and they're playing it, and it is persuasive to Pilate. This is actually political blackmail. Pilate knew that if he pardoned an accused traitor, he himself might actually be crucified for that. If Tiberius ever found out, he would have been aiding and abetting a, uh, aiding and abetting a traitor. So the Jews are coercing Pilate into crucifying Jesus or else risking crucifixion himself, maybe. They're extorting an execution out of him. So when they say, look, you're no friend of Caesar, what Pilate hears in that is, hey, do you want Jesus to be crucified or do you want it to be you on that cross? Because we'll tell Tiberius and you know what kind of guy he is. It's Jesus or you. So they've got Pilate over a barrel and he knows it. So Pilate's hands are tied, that's true. But Pilate's hands are not clean, that's also true. He knows Jesus is innocent. He's testified to it three times. Even so, he feels like he has to play the game if he wants to keep a spot on the team. So he sits down in the judgment seat to give the people what they want. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. John notes that it's Passover time, recalling the Baptist testimony that Jesus is the Lamb of God from chapter 1. Pilate points out, the absurdity of the situation one more time by making them take a long, hard look at the miserable person they just can't hate enough. They insist. Pilate gives them one last chance to change their minds, and the chief priests shoot back at him in a very revealing phrase, we have no king but Caesar. That may be another veiled political threat that to pardon Jesus is to rebel against Tiberius, and Pilate shouldn't do that, but... For Jewish priests to say we have no king but Caesar is really to deny that God is even their king. In fact, they themselves had either just sung or would soon sing at Passover a hymn from the end of a traditional Passover liturgy that actually included this stanza. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God besides Thee, we have no king, redeemer or savior. We have no king but thee. They sung in church at Passover. Yet here they yell at the top of their lungs. We have no king but Caesar. It's a denial of their whole covenant relationship with God. It's as bad as their forefathers asking for a king like all the other nations had in 1 Samuel 8. So he delivered him over the, to them to be crucified. The point of that passage is that Jesus really is the king people mocked him to be. Yet, he died for those who killed him. I think that point preaches just as well today as it did in John's day. Jesus really is the king that people mock him to be. And yet... He died for the very people who killed him. 
They thought Jesus was the one making himself out to be king. I mean, this has been the Jews' accusation all along. He, they tell Pilate he has made himself the son of God, but this is what they've been saying about him over the past year or two. John 10, 33. It is not, good, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Isn't that exactly what people say of him today? It's been their problem ever since chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And it is true. Jesus was claiming to be God and displaying proof of his miracles, but Jesus was not doing this without God's approval or as if he was accomplishing it by his own word. Peter would say in Acts 2.36, after the resurrection of Jesus, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He didn't make himself that. God made him that. Jesus had not appointed himself king or priest. God the Father had appointed Jesus as king, and they crucified him for it. Yet his death under God's wrath would count even for those who killed him. When the Jews heard what Peter had said in that first sermon at Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even you, who I just said, you crucified him. You can too. Now, if all this is true, then what are the implications? If this is true, what else is true? That's an implication. If all this is true, then what else is true too? Well, what else is true is that God was sovereign over the Jews' sin and Pilate's complicity in it. 1911, Jesus says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Given by who? Given by what? Circumstance? Fate? No, by God. Peter said in the same sermon from Acts 2, 23 and 24 that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God was sovereign over that. God planned that. He was delivered up, handed over, betrayed according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned it, and that plan is the sense in which he foreknew it. God did not simply know what Pilate would do to Jesus or what the Jews would do to Jesus. God knew what he himself would do with their treatment of Jesus. And if God planned this greatest of all evils to have the best of all outcomes, the worst injustice of the most righteous person in the history of the world, literally, with the best of all outcomes being the salvation of God's people from all of their sins, then we can trust God the Father with every evil and injustice we encounter in others or experience ourselves. And I know that's a tall statement. I read a headline this week that I can't even repeat to you. It is so egregiously unjust and horrific. I know what goes through your minds. I know what you see in the world that is evil and makes you think, is there even a good God out there? Because that should not happen. Whatever you saw this week, whatever headline you read this week that was like the one I read this week, even that headline is not as bad as what happened here in John 19. And if you don't believe that, I don't think you're a Christian because I don't think you know the sinlessness of Christ like you ought to know it and the injustice of the cross that it really was. 
Another theological implication, Jesus tells Pilate, he who handed me over to you has the greater sin, and therefore there are degrees of sin. There are degrees of sin. You hear even well-meaning Christians say, all sin is sin, all sin is the same, no sin is worse than any other sin, and we understand what they mean by that. What they mean by that is, look, I'm just as bad a sinner as anybody else. We're not trying to be holier than thou here. We're not trying to be self-righteous. And the best interpretation you can put on that is, yep, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus Christ. We all need this sacrifice that he made for us. We all need him with equal urgency. There is a sense of profundity there. That's true. But it is not true that shoplifting a piece of gum is just as bad a sin as child molestation. You you, you know that. You know better than to equate those two things or to punish them equally. And it is not even truth that Pilate's sin of ignorance is as bad as the Jews' sin of handing Jesus over to Pilate with all their knowledge of Jewish scriptures and what they taught about who the Messiah would be and what he would do. Those two sins are not the same in Jesus' mind. Knowledge aggravates guilt. Jesus taught in Luke 12, 47, the servant who... His masters, who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. Knowledge aggravates discipline. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Ignorance also mitigates responsibility. And this accords with what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 about tithing their herbs but neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Yeah, you should have tithed your herbs. I'm glad you did. Good job. And then you neglect justice and mercy and righteousness and faithfulness? Uh, Weigh the balances. There are differences of weight or importance even among the commands of God. And it's wisdom for us to recognize it and live accordingly. There are also implications for who Christ is. Three times, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. That's John's narrative way of emphasizing Jesus was sinless. And there is an objective, even non-Christian judge who testified to it in triplicate. And that very sinlessness testified by Pilate is what qualified Jesus to die, even for the sins of those who were killing him. Jesus literally deserves to be King, he merits that office with all the authority that goes with it by his own righteous character, his conduct, his sacrifice. He is the king who laid aside his crown for us. Those songs that we sing matter. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, became as man. Stooping so low, look how low he stooped. beaten within an inch of his life, and then crucified, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan, thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. This is why. And whereas Pilate sat in the judgment seat to hear accusations against Jesus, Jesus will soon sit in the judgment seat of heaven to judge all the living and the dead. Jesus really is the king they mocked him to be. And sinner, if you don't stop mocking him, you will learn to your everlasting damnation that you were wrong. You were dead wrong. And you cannot afford to be wrong about this because you cannot afford to pay an eternal debt to an eternally righteous and glorious king that you have mocked as if he were not who he said he were. The crown they put on Jesus was made of thorns. And this is why we sing, My Jesus fair was pierced by thorns, by thorns grown from the fall. Thus he who gave the curse was torn to end that curse for all. Jesus is the Son of God. He was there at the fall of humanity. He was there. He was speaking the curse. He's the one who said, 
the ground's going to bear thorns and thistles for you because you wouldn't obey me. You don't obey me, the authority over you. Now the ground over which you had authority is not going to obey you. And we'll see how you like it. But Jesus was crowned with our curse. He took on himself, on his own head, the curse of God and bore it as if he were our scapegoat to take it away to his own grave and leave that curse buried there in the ground once for all while God raised him from the dead to vindicate his own righteousness and blessedness forever. Jesus suffered the shame of our sin as they mocked him. He was exposed as if he had thought and done the shameful things that we have all thought and done, as if he had rebelled against the king of heaven, as we had. And because he has done that for us, God has put on his head a greater crown. God has crowned him with glory and honor far above all rule and authority and power, Paul says in Philippians 2. And now he is Lord of our shame. You think Jesus doesn't know shame? You think Jesus doesn't understand how you feel ashamed of your sin? Hey, what do you think was happening here? He was suffering that shame for you. You're so ashamed of your sin that you can't pray to him about it? Hey, who do, you, who do you think he is? What kind of savior do you think he is? He suffered that shame for you. He knows exactly. That's why you can bring it to him. And instead of shaming us as they shamed him, he has compassion on us and welcomes us to himself for fresh forgiveness. And he offers us a new robe of his righteousness to cover our shame. Sinner, Jesus knows you are ashamed of your sin. He knows. He doesn't just know that you are ashamed of your sin. He knows how you feel in the shame of your sin. He's the only one who knows. But Jesus was not ashamed to suffer that shame for you so that he could cover your shame with his everlasting righteousness. Christian, that is why you must pray to Jesus about the shame of your sin. You've got to be able to pray to him, Jesus, I'm so ashamed of what I just did. You've got to be able to pray to him like that. You are able to. This is, that's why he did this. So that you would have a way to know he'll, he'll receive that prayer from you. He'll take that and he'll have compassion on you. He'll receive that prayer. Now, applications. If all this is true, then what should we do? What do we do about it? Well, we ought to first praise and thank Jesus for his love and his humility, his willingness to be humiliated, to be shamed. Friend, whether you're a Christian or not, look at what Jesus did here. You ever seen anything like this? Why did he endure such horrific suffering and shame even before he ever got to the cross? It was his love for the lost, for his enemies even. It was his mercy and compassion for sinners in their helplessness. He knew that he had to do this if any sinner was ever going to be reconciled to God in God's holiness and our sinfulness. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By this we know love that Christ laid down his life for us. Nobody took it from him. He laid it down. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. Now look at that again. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Look, that, that sentence is what tells you Christianity is not just some, oh, this is just what men think of God. No, no. Men would never think this of God unless God had done something in the cross like this through Jesus for men. We don't love God at all 
unless God has first loved us and given his son for us. God took the first step. God doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't exist. Jesus is not king because we think he is. That's not what John says in 1 John 3 and 4. He says, we love because he first loved us. We're responding to his love. We're responding to God's initiative in sending his own son to the cross for our sins to reconcile us to him. God doesn't love me because I decide on my own to love him. God loves me. God loves his people because he loves them. Because he set his love on them. Because he decided to have compassion on them. That's why. It's internal to himself, and he takes the first step. And so Jesus deserves all of our praise and gratitude for his love to us. His humility before God and men and the humiliation he suffered on the path to glory. And he knew, he knew this is what he was signing up for. He knew this would happen. He planned it. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3, 18. I guarantee you, you have never been loved like this. And if you mock Jesus, you should stop. chapter 19, verse 15, the Jews did not want to be ruled by Jesus. We have no king but Caesar, they said. But they were not unique in that desire. The human heart naturally prefers being ruled by this world rather than God. In fact, we prefer to be ruled by anything other than God. Because we are naturally self-guided, selfish, self-interested Self-protective. It's telling you something about humanity. We have no king but Caesar. Your heart says that. My heart says that sometimes. Our flesh wants to say that. And it is only God's spirit that makes us say anything else. This also applies not only to our state and our sinfulness, but also to leadership, and especially Christian leadership, but even non-Christian leadership. Look at Pilate. What often looks like a practical decision for a public reason is really just a sinful decision for a selfish reason. Pilate justified his pragmatism by reasoning that it was the best way to keep his position. Well, if you guys are going to tell on me to Tiberius, I guess you got me. That's why he handed Jesus over finally, even though he knew and repeatedly testified that Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew better. And he still did it because he thought, well, if I don't do this, I'm probably going to be out of a job and I may be the one that gets crucified instead of Jesus. So he thought he was doing a practical, pragmatic, self-protective thing for a political reason when in fact he was doing a sinful thing for a sinful reason. So whether you're in public office or public ministry or private business leadership, all this applies to you. Why do you decide and lead as you do? You have to have better reasons than, well, it just works. It's just practical. That's just the way the world is. What about principle? Does principle ever trump profit? Or politics for you? Or are you more like Pilate than you would care to admit? J.C. Ryle said this over a hundred years ago. To have one conscience in private and another in public, one rule of duty for our own souls and another for our public actions, to see clearly what, it is, what is right before God, and yet for the sake of popularity to do wrong. This may seem to some both right and politic and statesmanlike and wise, but it is a character which no Christian man can ever regard with respect. You tell me, do you respect Pilate? As a church, we're just as tempted to want the world to rule us 
rather than Jesus or to bribe the world with the church's best gifts so that the world will not give us a hard time. Just like the Jews did. The Jews didn't just blackmail Pilate into killing Jesus. They also bribed Pilate with the offer of Jesus in order to preserve their nation and their empire. Remember, Caiaphas? It's better for one man to die than for the Romans to come and take away our place and nation. So let's offer up Jesus, and that'll give us peace with Rome. And it'll all be good, and we'll still have what we want. Win-win. And so they offer up Jesus, Israel's greatest treasure, so that Rome will leave them alone. But that's what the Old Testament kings did when they gave all the temple treasures to foreign kings so that those foreign kings would either spare them from other international kings' armies or so that those, uh, those kings would spare them and not attack them themselves. Listen to this, 2 Kings 12, 17 and 18. I was just reading this in my quiet time the other day. At that time, Hazael, king, king of Syria, pagan king, went up and fought against Gath of the Philistines and took it, which is very close to Judea. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoahash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Joram and Ahaziah, his fathers, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the gold in the temple, and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. And then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. Well, If that's not selling out, I don't know what is. You just give him all the gold in the temple that was reserved for the worship of God and say, leave us alone, leave us alone. Well, pray tell, what in the world is the temple worth now? You just sold out. Same thing with the Jews giving up Jesus. Jesus is the greatest treasure of God's house. He is the gold in the temple. And the Jews gave him up to Rome to save their place and nation. Just make sure that we keep our tax exemption. What's more, they give to Caesar here in John 19 the place reserved for God alone. To say we have no king but Caesar is the same thing as Ahaz said in 2 Kings 16. Ahaz, king of Judah, sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. King of Judah, telling a foreign king, I'm your son, when God had said, I will be David's father and he will be my son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. I am your servant and son. I'm your boy. Take all the gold in the temple and come save me. Because Yahweh isn't one I can trust. That's the application whether in theology, morality, or liturgy. We are tempted to be pragmatic and do what works to please and appease the world, to be on the ends with the world rather than trusting God in Christ to rule our life and ministry together for his glory and our good by his word. Churches, churches are tempted to sell Jesus out to the world, to offer Jesus up, not as Savior and Lord, but as a bribe. Here, do with Jesus whatever you'd like. Think of Jesus however you will. And we will think like that too, so that you will like us and leave us alone and let us enjoy our place and our nation. Here, you can have Jesus. Do, it, do, do with him whatever you want. Do to him whatever you want. Here, take Jesus this way. Take all his benefits while we hide all of his costs from you. Take therapeutic Jesus. Think of him as your therapist. Take love is love Jesus, who approves of any way 
of living. Take get out of hell free, Jesus. Take family first, Jesus. Take America first, Jesus. Take social justice, Jesus. Take rock and roll, Jesus. Take health and wealth, Jesus. But whatever you do, don't reject us. Don't treat us as outsiders. Don't take away our place and nation and tax exemption and building. You can have Jesus. Just don't take away what we love about what we got from Jesus. Those are all modern ways that a church says to the world, we have no king but Caesar. And you can't say that sentence without betraying Jesus. That's bribing the world with the gold of the temple. Church family, let's never do that. Jesus told us in John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. And here in John 19, that's exactly what he's doing. He's laying down his life. Nobody's taking it from him. He's laying it down for our sins so that he can suffer the wrath that our sins deserved from God. But John says in his first letter to the churches, if Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for each other. Christian, member of Grace Covenant Baptist, how are you laying down your life for others here? How are you laying down your time, your energy, your preferences, your commitments, your resources? I mean, is there anything that you are giving up for the sake of doing spiritual good to someone else here? Jesus said, he who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friend, maybe you have yet to find your life because you've not yet lost it for others and for the gospel. Christian, we should also beware that we don't sin while we think we're obeying Scripture. These Jews thought that they were serving God and obeying Scripture by executing Jesus. See, they thought they were the biblical ones. They thought they were the conservative ones. This is not what our law says. They were the hardliners. They took Scripture literally. See, your heart can deceive you that you have biblical reasons to commit terrible sins in God's name and quote a verse while you're doing it. But Satan himself quoted Scripture to Jesus. Just because you have a verse doesn't make you right. There's a wrong kind of biblicism that echoes what the Jews said against Jesus. We have a law. They should have known better, and we should know better too. Friend, what are you tempted to say this about? We have no king but... What's your heart? How does your heart, how does your flesh want to answer that, want to finish that? Maybe it's yourself. And who are you tempted to say these things with? What community do you want to be a part of that, that encourages you to say, we have no king but, but self. We have no king but sexual identity. We have no king but business and the bottom line. We have no king but social justice. We have no king but freedom and self-determination. We have no king but popular opinion. We have no king but prosperity or privacy or leisure. We have no king but safety and security. We have no king but the American dream. We have no king but retirement. To finish that sentence honestly is to discover your idol. Maybe you won't say it out loud, but how would others finish that sentence for you if they knew you? Pilate said of Jesus to the Jews, Behold the man. And sinner, John the evangelist says to you, 
behold the man Christ Jesus here in the pages of Scripture. Look at him in all the humiliation of his humanity. This is why he came, to die for all those who would kill him. Look on him, sinner. Don't look away. Let your heart break for him. And say to him with us today, Thou who art love, beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love, beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Let's pray together. Father, we confess there are corners of our hearts that still do not submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ as he rightfully deserves our obedience. Lord Christ, forgive us for any way that we have mocked your authority over us. May we walk in newness of life under the goodness of kindness, the humility and compassion of your authority. May we recognize afresh that you laid down your life for the sheep. May we love you and worship you for it, not only as Savior, but as King. For your sake we pray. Amen.